Here we go. We are back again. I'm on a roll, guys. I'm on a roll. Uh, so once again, guys, welcome back to the channel, the Come Up channel. This is going to be my first Green Beret on the channel, so super stoked. I had two reg uh, Ranger Regiment guys um, on the podcast, so once again, it's going to be my first Green Beret, so going to be pretty awesome. So my guest is a former Green Beret and uh, served a total of 10 years um, in the Army. Currently, what he's doing now, he's really just mentoring and coaching people, whether that be mental preparation or uh, physical preparation. And those are, of course, things that we'll get into uh, more down the line as the episode keeps going. But that's my guest. Welcome, my guest, John Hamilton. Hey, I appreciate you having me here, man. Hopefully I can represent well. Oh, yeah, you got to, man. <laughs> the Oppresso Libro, man. Is that, yeah. is that how you say it? The Oppresso Libero. Le oh, man. See, I yeah, no, say you're it. good. <laughs> DOL. DOL. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so kind of like I've been trying to do, the last couple episodes, guys, sending the expectations, giving you the what and the why of this video. Uh, so in terms of what we're going to be covering is, of course, we're going to start from the beginnings uh, as far as growing up with John. From there, we'll get into the decision to join the Army, um, SFAS, or we'll get into his time in the 160th, going, uh, putting in a packet to go SFAS, Q course, time as an ODA, how it was as a FNG. I won't say what the F, but uh, <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And yeah, that's basically going to be kind of what we're going to be covering. And of course, we're going to get his you know tips in regards to all those different topics as well um, to kind of help you guys out who are looking to go um, down that path as well. And in terms of why, guys, I mean, hey, he has a plethora of experience. I mean, 10 years in special operations community. Um, so why wouldn't you want to listen to the guy? He has a lot of, uh, like I said, can help you mentally. Um and physically, so he's, he's going to be the guy for sure to help you out with that. But first, all right, so in terms of warm-up questions, first one's going to be, man, hopefully this one's not too bad, too hard. It's going to be, what is your proudest uh, accomplishment? My proudest accomplishment is probably um, our trip to Afghanistan. And not necessarily for the mission, because obviously the way Afghanistan ended, but um, just being able to, to experience the the missions and obviously working with the team and developing that bond on the on the team level and uh, carrying out the particular missions. It was like, so I was obviously in the army for 10 years and I felt like the entire time you're in the army, you're always training for, you know, that that real life experience, the applicable um when you get to go out and actually do your job. So I think that part of my life of going to Afghanistan, actually doing what I just spent all those years training for was a really great feeling and um, brought a lot of this sense of accomplishment. Got you. Uh, this one might correspond. It might kind of be the same, but it's a little bit different. But what was one of the happiest uh, moments um, in your life that you can recall? And you know, why was it special to you? Yeah, I, I would say... Probably one of the happiest moments I could recall is um, is coming home and being with my family. Um, like obviously the accomplished side, the professional aspect of that is brings a lot of accomplishment. But coming home, being with your family after that experience um, is really kind of a, an experience you don't get to experience like um, enjoy outside of that realm. Like you have to go through intense turmoil to get that crazy dopamine level of seeing your family for the first time in a long, you know, in a while. And after all of that, um, those tough times. So I think just coming home after those experiences was probably the happiest. And then I would say the, the stuff that I'm most proud about is doing the actual job. 
Got you. And uh, what is something you wish you knew five years ago? Five years ago, I wish I knew more about investing. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I would have bought Bitcoin. <laughs> um, and two more. I, I got two more for you, man. Um, this one's going to be, what is the meaning of life for you? The meaning of life for me is is inspiring and doing the things that bring you fulfillment. Um, I think a lot of us struggle with finding fulfillment and what that really means to us. And we seek it out in monetary ways, obviously just making a joke about Bitcoin. Um, but I think the meaning of life is really just uh, kind of on capping what it is that brings us the most fulfillment, what it is that gets us out of bed and inspires us, gets us like chasing that fire and things like that. And um, for me, that's that's uh, kind of coaching people to unlock their true potential. And and then when I see them go out and, and do great things, I get a, a ton of fulfillment from that. Got you. Last one. Last one, John's going to be, if you had to write a book about yourself, what would it be called and what would it be about? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, actually, I've I've not writing a book, but I've experimented with writing more lately because I I think uh, it's something that helps you develop your thoughts and really get to know you um, yourself at a deeper level. And uh, I think if I were to write a book, it would be about um, I would share my life experiences, both the bad and the good, and um kind of inspire people to think about life in a different way and think about uh, living their lives to the point of what brings them the most happiness and not living their lives by um, what other people want them to do. I think so often we're, we're influenced by outside pressures like our parents or our friends, what they think our, our lives should look like and what they think our we should be doing with our time and all this stuff. Um, but I think when you can really kind of identify what it is that you enjoy doing, regardless of what other people think, that's where you find um, happiness. So I think if I were to write a book, it would be about my experience in that because I used to be that kid, man. Like I just wanted to accomplish things so that my family would be proud of me so that, you know, my peers would look up to me and all this stuff. And um, it wasn't until the last couple of years that that, kind of shifted got you yeah people are probably going to be asking for a book now in your discord not necessarily like, man, where's the book coming out <laughs> but uh cool man let's go ahead and get into growing up you know let's of course start with the basics you know just kind of when where you were born and you know how many siblings if you had any siblings yeah so i i kind of have a, had a, a weird upbringing i was born in michigan um my parents split when i was really young so i ended up moving out to washington and then from there, I moved 18 times before my 18th birthday. So I was all around uh, eastern side of Washington. I was down in Oregon, moved down to Arizona for a little bit, back up to the west side of Washington. Um, and fast forward, my my freshman year of high school, my mom met this guy uh, who was actually the dad of one of my best friends on the football team. And they ended up linking up. They got married. And then it was like a real stepbrother situation. But as far as siblings, I have one biological brother who uh, also has some interesting stories. He has a pretty nefarious background, so um, we came out very separate. We're like very close, but completely opposites when it comes to personality. And then I have five step-siblings, one of which was my stepbrother I, that I played football with and all that, but I'm the youngest out of everybody. Wow, that's a big family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, I... 
I only ever lived with uh, my stepbrother, Alex, who I've actually had on uh, my, I guess, social media channel. But uh, and the, the, the ones that were older were already out of the house by the time we met. So it was never like a crazy big household. Um, I always lived with one brother at a time, but yeah, it's, it's a pretty big family. Got you. Before I, I kind of go into, um, your, your stepfather, I want to get into your, your biological father. Um, just because your, your biological father, uh, was a chronic alcoholic and he was also a drug user at the time as well. I know he's, he's sober, uh, from what you told me offline. Uh, but at the time he was uh, dealing with that. Um, how did, how did that affect you as a kid? I think, um, I just made a video about it recently, but I think it, it turned me off a lot to alcohol and it showed me the dangers of addiction early on. Um, it was like growing up, man, he was, everything revolved around alcohol. Anytime I was around my dad, it was, uh, he was drinking. Um, this led to my, my biological brother being an alcoholic and dealing with his own set of, uh, addiction problems and things like that. So it, from an early age, it really opened my eyes to the destructive powers of addiction um, and how like deeply of a grasp addiction can have on a person and how much it can change their personality and turn them into this source of negativity. Like my dad um, and my brother were, I mean, they're, they're great people. They're super kind hearted, all this stuff, like never um, would cross somebody when they're sober. But as soon as their they their vices take control of their life, they they get addicted to alcohol. My dad was a crack user, so that drug side of it, um, it controls their life, and they end up burning bridges, burning relationships, and burning other people in general to continue to feed that addiction, and it becomes literally priority number one for them. So, I think uh, that. Like I said, it just opened my eyes um, and it's always kind of been my guiding light of what the hell not to do. Like I always looked at my my dad and I looked at my biological brother when he started going down that path. And I looked at that and I was like, I don't want my life to look like that. I don't want to have everyone turn their backs on me or, um, you know, cross people like that in the name of addiction. So I always kind of stayed away from that stuff. Uh, I turned to sports at an early age and I think it um, really influenced my outcome. Gotcha. And, uh, for a kid that is, uh, going through that, whether it's their mother or their father, uh, that is suffering from something like that, what kind of words of encouragement or, um, guidance can you, can you provide to them? Yeah, man, it's, it's an extremely hard situation because they're, you know, that's, it's your family and that's where you live. Um, but just know that your life doesn't have to look like that. And you have the ability to put yourself in a different environment once time comes. Um, obviously, living under that roof, you're kind of uh, in a tough position, but surround yourself with good friends. Um, friends mean everything. So get involved in sports, get involved with friends that uh, are wanting to improve their lives and stay away from those that are going down a similar path to your parents and use it as um, obviously a guide of what not to do. Got you. And and going to your stepfather now, your your stepfather was a Green Beret in the Cold War, right? He was, yeah. Can you kind of talk us through that and just kind of what he shared with you through through those experiences and stuff like that? Yeah. So he he got out uh before I, I ever met him. So I wasn't necessarily like a military brat at that point. But he definitely has some interesting stories that he didn't really start sharing with me until recently. Um when I was in high school, he kind of hinted the stories and 
we found this box of uh um soviet coins and all this stuff but he was with first group uh he learned russian first group uh, they spoke russian at the time they don't know um very much but and then uh he did a lot of stuff in south america so during the kind of war on drugs he was very involved with that i don't know what to what extent but um he definitely has some very interesting experiences and to this day. He's, you know, he's like an old timer uh, and, and they don't really share those, those experiences, even though they're 40 years ago, um, because obviously it was secret back then. So they're going to take it with them to the grave. <laughs> yeah. So like, even though it was like small glimpses, was that what sparked your curiosity to want to go SF and they start me, had you reading books or doing anything like that? Oh yeah, Absolutely. And I mean, he would like give little stories about how they were out at night, um, you know, throwing grenades into the lake or something like that, just like being jackasses, little soldiers. So um, those kind of experiences sounded like an adventure. You know, he spent some time um, in the Pacific and has all these stories from uh, the Philippines and everything like that. So those it 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 sparked my interest in the special operations community. And just like you said, I started reading, reading books. Um, I started reading a lot of the Afghanistan war because that was going on at the time. Uh, chosen soldier was one of the first books I picked up, which is obviously following a Q course student through, um, the, the pipeline of becoming a green beret. And I always kind of set my, my sights on becoming a green beret. Um, and having similar experiences, having an adventure, just like my stepfather did. Got you. That's awesome, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it like, uh, especially when you're a kid, you know, like you don't really know what you want to do, but you want to have an exciting life. And I think special operations in general provides so much excitement and just that adventure factor that it was very appealing to me at an early age. Yeah. You're definitely going to have a ton of stories to tell. Yeah. Uh, most definitely. Uh, but going to your decision to join the army now, um, for what, from what you told me, you kind of already knew for sure that you're going to the army. So were you doing all the planning, like your senior year of high school with meeting with recruiters and just kind of seeing the fastest way to get shipped out? Yeah. So at the time I played football, um, and I was, my life revolved around football. Um, I ended up getting hurt my senior year, broke my collarbone twice. So I missed essentially half of the games and, that didn't really set me up for success going into college. Like I didn't get the offers I thought I would, all this type of stuff. So I started looking at other options. Um, obviously, with the military being in the back of my mind with my stepfather and everything, um, it was something of interest. And my stepbrother, Alex, actually reached out to a recruiter first. And uh, he just texted me one afternoon. He's like, hey, bro, the army recruiter's coming by the house tonight. You should, you should uh, come home and, you know, be part of the conversation. So I was like, all right, I'll check it out. And then I just really resonated with everything the recruiter said. He freaking got me, man. So uh, I was actually the first one to enlist between me and my brother, even though he was the one that brought it up. So I enlisted on the delayed entry program in January of my my senior year um, and then did that delayed entry program until August, which is when I shipped out to basic August of 2012. Did you know anything about the 18X at the time? I did. However, I was, I was too young. So That's right. my, my plan was, um, I enlisted as EOD and, uh, cause I, I always thought being an engineer and like the explosives part of the, 
the job was very cool. Obviously you're seeing, um, like people downrange mostly struggling with IEDs. I was like, oh, I want to be a, uh, kind of help with that. And then the movie hurt locker. So I was like, Oh, EOD is freaking it, man. So, um, I joined his EOD and then my plan was to go there for a couple of years until I'm old enough to go to selection, drop the packet and then make the transition over. Um, obviously EOD didn't work out. So I ended up in aviation and luckily found my way into the 160th. So where was, uh, where was your basic training at? I went to Jackson because okay. EOD is not, uh, obviously not infantry. So, um, we did the Jackson thing and then I went out to Fort Lee. Okay. And I feel everybody in, uh, at some point they have that culture shock. Uh, when, when was that moment for you? The culture shock of joining the military? Yeah. You're like, Oh my God. Like what? Almost like, what did I get myself into kind of thing? I would say it was after I failed EOD. Um, they EOD school at, at Fort Lee is like this, uh, kind of system where there's like 300 people in this company, massive. And the fifth floor of this building is where all the dropouts go. So I failed. They said, all right, you're going to get reclassed. Move me up to the fifth floor. Um, you wait like a month to find out what type of job you're doing. And I ended up getting a aircraft structural repair. So um, got my orders. I'm shipping out to Fort Eustis. And they're like, hey, you gotta, you're got you going to take a train. So it was on us at that point. Took a taxi to the train station. I was sitting in this like shitty train station in Virginia. And that's when the culture shock hit me. I was like, dude, what am I doing? Like, I don't know anybody around me. It's me and one other guy throwing these bags into this Greyhound bus going to Fort Eustace to learn a new job because we just failed out of this other one. And I was like, my whole plan is turned up on its, you know, turned upside down and all this stuff. So that was like, uh, that was probably my culture shock. And I was like, dude, I'm, I'm in it. I'm like, I'm stuck and I'm at the, you know, needs of the army at this point. So, <laughs> so, um, so once you get to your destination, um, you get to basic, would you say basic for you for the most part, did you get that mentally, physically, were you mentally and physically challenged or was it not really a big factor for you? No, I wasn't really challenged at basic, um, kind of going in with that mindset. I think other people can probably resonate with this when you go in with that mindset of like, you want to do the hardest thing in the military. Like, ultimately I want to go special forces. So my sights were so much further than just graduating basic. I knew just basic was like a stepping stone. So I never really had like a culture shock. I didn't really, I, my motivation levels were pretty high all throughout basic. Um, and I think when you go into it as you know, that this is just a stepping stone and, you know, uh, a temporary, a temporarily temporary stop on your way to get to where you want to be. Um, it doesn't really impact you as, as much as like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm stuck here at basic for these 12 weeks or whatever it is. Um, so no, I, I wasn't really affected as much at, at basic as some other people may have been. Okay. And in, in terms of AIT, I want to go to when you volunteer for 160th. So can you just kind of walk us through that and how you were afforded that opportunity to uh, volunteer for the uh, 160th? Yeah. So Obviously, my my job changed, um, but my motivation levels didn't. I was still training hard every day. I was rocking on the weekends. I was that little nerdy soldier always, you know, um, working. And I didn't even know anything about 160th. Uh, we just got off a of class one day, and there's and they were like, "Hey, these you know special operations aviation guys are coming by to to give a brief." And I walk in there, and they the first thing they do is play this video um, where it has the DAPS, which is 
the Blackhawks with the Hellfires on like the um the mini guns on the side and everything. And then they have like the little birds, people fast roping from little birds. And I'm like, this is it, dude. Like this is what I want to do. So um I was like the first, you know, name on the sheet of like volunteering for the 160th. And then like my motivation levels peaked again. I was like, I'm back in it. We're going to special operations. Um, well, a couple of weeks go by, we're getting near, like near graduation at my course and I haven't heard anything. I get orders for Germany. So I'm going to Cotterbach, Germany. And, uh, I'm like, Oh, I guess like, I don't know if I didn't get selected for 160th, like what's going on. Um, we graduate. I still have orders for Germany. I bought the plane ticket. Like my bags are packed to go to Germany. And I walk into the people that cut the orders and everything like that. And I'm like, Hey, a couple of weeks ago, I volunteered for the 160th and I still haven't received orders. Like I'm supposed to leave to Germany. What can we do? And, uh, they got on the phone with like the sword, the sword recruiters, all this type of stuff. Um, and ended up cutting me orders on the spot, cutting my, my Germany orders and then buying me a plane ticket to Fort Campbell. So I was like sick <laughs> and, and, uh, last minute got like into the, my foot in the door into special operations. So, so what is the mission set of? The 160th. Yeah, they're so they're essentially um the taxi drivers, you know, the the pilots, the aviation platform for special operations. So for Navy SEALs, 75th Ranger Regiment, obviously special forces, um, anybody that's going in doing high risk raids, they're likely flying in with the 160th. Okay. I also didn't know there was MOSs within the 160th. I was I thought it was just pilots. No, um, it's it's a lot like the 75th as you know how they have a sheet of MOSs. Yeah. All they have support MOSs, all this type of stuff. So yeah. So and and you also mentioned too, like when you went to volunteer and, and you, you got orders for 160th, that um you would you didn't categorize it as a selection. What what did you mean by that? Yeah. So when you go to 160th, the first thing you have to go through is um green platoon. They have two phase they have two green platoons. One of them is EGP, which is enlisted green platoon, and then OGP, which is obviously officer green platoon. And it's broken up into um, four phases where they go over combat skills, one of them being land nav, medical training, um, combatives, and then weapons. And it's somewhat like a selection in the sense that you have to maintain the standard or you have to, you know, uh, reach the standard you have to you get smoked all the time you do all these crazy layouts they have rucks that are like ruck marches they have a day called black day where you literally just get smoked for like 20 hours um so there's a lot of physical very strenuous things that you go through in the course but it's not necessarily a selection in the sense of you can finish the course and then they still tell you you're not selected typically it's like if you don't quit and you do everything that you're supposed to, you meet the standard, you will pass. You will go to the 160th. Um, as opposed to obviously SFAS, you can complete everything. You can complete the trek at the end and be a non-select and still go back to your unit. So um, in that aspect, it's it's a little bit different, um, but it's still a very challenging course. Okay. So once you make it, kind of like what's the, what's the lifestyle like? And are you able to really enjoy it or you're still like... I want to be green gray. I want, I'm, I'm just like, look, I'm looking past this kind of thing. Yeah, no, I, I really bought into the 160th. Um, they took care of me really well. It was a very professional environment and, uh, I genuinely enjoyed working for it. I took a lot of pride in being a night stalker. Um, 
but I, I didn't really resonate with the job I was doing. I liked the unit and the mission we were completing, but I felt that I could do more in my, my individual job. So that's what ultimately led me to going SF or, you know, making the jump over, even though I really enjoyed the 160th. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, that's probably my favorite unit that I've served in, uh, to this day unit wise, um, is the 160th and I have nothing but good things to say about it. So at what point, um, did you make that decision to go, uh, put the packet in for SFES? Cause I, I know, uh, I don't know if it was like an NCO or an officer, but they're like, oh, like, don't get it twisted. Like, this organization is not a stepping stone. So I can only imagine that kind of like, like oh, crap. Like, well, dang, I want to go SF. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that when I first got to the 160th, um, the CSM of the entire 160th walked into our like welcome brief and he had just got done uh, running that morning. This dude was like a super fit guy. And one of the first things he said is this is not a stepping stone unit. Like, this is it you know, first battalion and the 160 or 160th, they call, they refer to as the show. So, um, there's a lot of pride built up around it. And it, the fact that it's not a stepping stone unit because for aviation, it's not like it's, it's, uh, pretty much end game. So, um, but what led me to it is I went on a couple deployments with the 160th and I, I, uh, we supported a lot of the special forces operations, um, and kind of seeing their, operations from an outsider perspective you know we're looking at the isr feed and i'm like watching it inside the talk and everything like that i just felt like i was on the sidelines and i wanted to be more involved although what we were doing was providing a necessary support for those operations i wanted to be the guy on the ground i wanted to be the guy at the tip of the spear so to say so um that's what led me to that and as soon as i got back i was like hey you know, I went into my first sergeant's office. I was like, this is what I'm doing, man. I'm going to selection. So once you get to SFES, um, what, what's, what's in processing like? At SFES? Yeah. We, I remember the first thing we did was you made this, like, I got there, you know, at like eight or nine o'clock at night. It was really late day of traveling. And we made this giant kind of pyramid of MREs because that's all you eat the whole time. So they put you to work as soon as you get there. Um, and we were just loading MREs in the trucks, like stacking MREs for hours. Uh, cause that's the MREs, the entire class is going to eat for the entire, for the duration of the training. So there wasn't necessarily like a, a paper, like sit down, you know, sign your, your thing. And this is the end processing. Like you get to work and then they take care of that stuff as you go. And how long, uh, was this FAS at the time? Cause at the time it was two weeks, right? No, uh, I went when it was 21 days. So it, it went to two weeks. They did the, obviously the, um, two weeks in hell, I think was the the show on Netflix or whatever. And then they ended up going back to the 21 days. Okay. And how was SFS structured? Cause I know like an SFRE, they have like Amber phase, red phase. Like how was SFS structured throughout those 21 days? So the first week, uh, they refer to as gate week. You do a lot of your runs and rucks. Second week is land nav. And then the final week is um, team week, which sucks. There's, that's by far the worst week. Okay. Yeah, I know. I hear, uh, I think uh, one of the ranger, the regiment guys I had in the podcast, he told me that was brutal too. Because depending on how good your team is, you know, you may get back, you may finish early or you may get back late and you got little to no sleep and you're bruised up like terribly. Seriously. 
Yeah, and they they wouldn't let anybody sleep until the last team got back. So luckily, I wow. the teams I was on were pretty good. Um, but they would just we had free time. But you're not allowed to sleep until the last team gets there. So they would get in at like one thirty, two o'clock in the morning. Mind you, they started at seven o'clock that morning. So they're they're freaking working all day and night. They get. I don't know, hour and a half. We got two hours of sleep maybe. And then we're right back at it. <laughs> Dude, that's just think about it. Just, just hurts me, man. <laughs> oh, it was so gnarly. What are the, what is the PT test consist of? Is it the usual push up, sit ups, run, ruck, like all the stuff like that? Yeah. When I went, um, I've heard that it, it recently changed. I know, uh, um, Green Bay Chronicles just went over some of the changes that were implemented recently. But when I went, it was just a standard APFD. So push-ups, sit-ups, run. Um, and yeah, there are lots of crazy fit guys, but uh, I was kind of middle of the pack during the gate week portion of it. Um, but yeah, it was just the the regular APFD at the time. And then the pull-ups at the end. Do you remember your numbers at all by any chance? I max push-ups, max sit-ups. I think I ran around a 12:45 um run and then I think I got like 12 pull-ups or something like that. But there was this guy I went to selection with. He was this like stud, man. He was so athletic, like this dude was jacked. Everyone thought this this guy's just going to have no problem with selection. Well, at the APFT, you kind of they had these like little clickers, you know, the little counters and they they click it every time they you do a push up. So if you count the clicks, you know if your push ups are counting or not. Well, he just did. He, I think it was like seventy one push ups at the time for seventeen to twenty one range. Um, the dude just went down, busted up seventy one push ups in like a minute twenty, and then stood up. And that night, um, they call out everybody. Everyone gets information. They call out the roster numbers of people who are getting sent home for either failing or not doing well enough on the PT test. And he got called. He got sent home. And the reason was he didn't do push-ups for the entire two-minute section. So even though this guy is like a freaking physical beast, because he didn't put out 100% effort, they sent him home. Yeah, man. It's that character. That's that's, yeah. what, that's a lot of what I feel like they're looking for based on, you know, your content and, you know, Greenberg Chronicles, et cetera, um, that they look for. How was that navigation for you? Because I know most people fear that. And uh, that's where a lot of attrition can come from. How was land navigation throughout SFES for you? Land nav wasn't too bad. Um, the terrain was really open. So I felt like I, I was always under control, like knew where I was at at some point. Um, we're at every point throughout the course. There were some draws. We call draw monsters out there that absolutely ate me up and made me question whether my compass was even right or not. But other than the, the draws, like I didn't have very much of an issue. I did go in January so we had a couple nights out at land nav that were just balls cold, man. Like we had one night with like a, a wind chill that was negative five or something like that. So you'd wake up and your entire sleeping bag was just covered in ice. And I would say that was the hardest part of land nav for me. It was just like waking up and getting out of my little sleeping bag. It's like you're out there, like you you have no choice but to get out of your sleeping bag. But you're like, man, this really sucks. I got to put these cold ass boots on and start rucking with this heavy ass pack, like. That so I think the mental aspect of just getting started when it was that cold was the hardest part. But when I got moving, like land nav really wasn't that bad. I felt I was a big hunter, um, so I I spent 
a lot of time out in the woods, like chasing deer and everything like that. So I was very comfortable in that environment. And, uh, I found all my points with plenty of time to spare. I was chilling by the fire, eating MREs. So it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't too bad. Okay. And at some point, at some point you're going to get tested at, uh, during selection. When was that for you? That was team week. Team week. Team week. Yeah. There was this particular event we did where, um, everything you do, you have a rucksack on. And I remember I had the rucksack on, we had four people on this, this giant log. Um, and obviously you have a rucksack. So the log is just sitting on the back of your neck. And I just felt like my spine was going to snap. Like I just felt so much pressure and we would switch out like every 30 seconds. We had like, um, four guys on the log, one guy just filling in. So you'd get, I think it was like every two minutes or every minute 30 you get a break and that minute 30 of work like was testing me we had five miles to go with this log and that was like the time i was like damn this is this is real shit <laughs> no yeah man. so like so coming to the end of uh sfas i'm, I'm sure it's nerve-wracking because like you said you can complete the whole course and not get selected um how, how was that that uh, that experience when you're coming down to the who's getting selected, who's not getting selected. It honestly felt surreal when I went to selection. Um, although I I'd been motivated and I wanted to be a green parade, you know, since I was a freaking teenager, you still compare yourself to others. And I, I talk about when I showed up to selection, I had like imposter syndrome. Like I was looking at all these dudes that were like six, three, just super lean, super jacked, extremely fit guys. And, uh, I was like, oh man, I don't, I don't know if I belong here. Like these guys are the ones that are going to make it. Um, but I knew I wasn't going to quit. Like quitting was never an option. Um, I, I knew it was 21 days. I'm going to see this 21 days through regardless of whether or not, whether or not I get selected. So, uh, a lot of those guys that I thought were going to be crushing it, you know, some of them disappeared in the middle of the night. Um, some of them got dropped. Some of them, obviously, like I said, didn't put the effort out and ended up getting sent home on on that those grounds but uh t t nearing the end i remember standing information outside the building where they go and tell you whether or not you got selected and it just felt surreal like i didn't it didn't really hit me that i was i had such a great chance of getting selected cuz um for a, a large part of it like i i was just going along um day by day like didn't really think about the outcome i was just focused on you know surviving <laughs> uh so it, there was never a point where it like hit me that i'm gonna get selected i sat down at the computer dude told me i got selected and i was like holy shit like i guess i'm gonna be a green beret <laughs> this is crazy yeah man i can only imagine your your confidence and just morale just goes through the roof you know what i yeah, mean through I mean, that yeah because like like i said i i didn't really i kind of had that imposter syndrome going through it and i was like man these guys are the real deal and i'm just like i'm just surviving you know doing my thing uh going day by day and then when when i actually heard the words i was like man this is this is pretty cool and um kind of going to like the tips aspect of it for uh future candidates um going into selection you know you, you know um you're hoping for the best um for the most part of course what are some things you need to have like squared away before showing up to, to uh to selection if that makes sense yeah i would say injuries um you know everyone everyone trains hard to go to selection or should train hard 
and you know what you have to do and you know where you have to be physically to get there. And a lot of times when we train, we develop nagging injuries, whether I had an Achilles issue, um, people have hips, you know, shoulders, all this type of stuff. And if you go to selection with one of those nagging injuries, it'll get highlighted. And a lot of people get sent home because they can't deal with the pain of it or they legitimately can't go further. So I would say, uh, take care of your injuries, um, and take recovery very serious in the, in your train up to go to selection. And what are some underrated things people don't take serious? Um, like for example, foot care. Yeah. Foot care is huge. Um, you know, I, I've lost like four toenails. I started developing blisters under my toenails at selection. Um, I admittedly like didn't have the best foot care at selection. My boots were a little bit too small. So my, my toes were pounding into the, the front of them whenever I would rock. Um, so just getting comfortable with your gear, you know, wear the boots that you're going to, you're going to take the selection, get them worn in, um, do a couple of rucks with a heavy pack that like, equivalent to what you will carry at selection. So you know where the hot spots are, whether you develop uh toe issues like I did. Um and really just be mindful of how your body's feeling uh going into selection because like I said, everything, every little issue is going to get highlighted. And then in in terms of Latin navigation, anything you can provide with that? Yeah, I, I always tell guys, um worry less about like the specifics of military land navigation. Obviously it's, it's good to have the knowledge, but just get outside and get comfortable in a wooded environment. Like, uh, there's so many apps now like Onyx hunt, um, that shows you some public lands and it tracks your GPS location. So it, you shouldn't be afraid to get outside and go get lost. Cause the technology we have these days, like you're never truly lost, but you should experience that feeling because I think a lot of people don't have very much experience outdoors, which I think was an advantage on my part with the hunting, obviously. And they, they get into this, the environment where they're away from everybody. They don't, and then they lose where they're at, right? They don't know where they're at on the map and they just panic or they get in one of those draws and it just eats them alive. They panic. It affects their ability to make um, intelligent decisions in regards to finding their point, And then it just spirals from there. So in regards to land nav, just get outside, get comfortable. Um, they have a great land nav course at selection, like going into it, they ensure that you really know what you're doing. So worry less about that aspect of it. Um, and more about just feeling comfortable in the outdoors by yourself. Okay. And then, um, kind of going to the, uh, the Q course now, when you enter the Q course, is your, is your confidence level like skyrocketed or you're still staying pretty humble and just calm, cool, collective? Yeah, I, I still stay pretty humble. I showed up to the Q course and I felt that same like imposter syndrome type of feeling, you know, um, you pass selection, you get this high and you go back to your unit and you're the only one that passed selection at your unit and you kind of are riding that high throughout that. And then when it comes to the Q course, like everyone's in the same boat as you are, like you, you're ground zero again and, um, it's time to work. So I, I kind of, got into that same mindset and then started taking it day by day again. And did you notice the cadre kind of loosening up a little bit more, more teachable? Cause from what I hear, like during selection, they're kind of like almost like robots. Like they're, they're not yelling at you. They're just kind of like looking at you may give you like a little grin here and there. Like, did they loosen up a little more? Yeah. I mean, uh, it depended on the cadre. Obviously I like get selection. It's a 
gentleman scores like there's a standard if you don't meet the standard you're gone it's very unemotional um when i went to the q course there were some cadre that um we described as like tab protectors like they just uh had it out to get people they always messed with you like we had you know nights where dudes were um they had them rucked up face painted and they just had to patrol the barracks for 12 hours like they just messed with dudes like that so it i honestly they the cadre um were not as chill at the q course than they were at selection in my experience most of the cadre at the q well i would say about half the cadre at the q course were just like intentionally screw with the candidates um in the course and i mean that's they're they're testing them they they're finding out whether or not they would want to serve on a team with them so um i kind of get where they're coming from but uh it's it it changed their their demeanors changed and it wasn't necessarily any looser um from selection to the q course and what what is the what is the overall intent of the q course like what is it cons- consisting of uh like the phases of the q course yeah like like overall like what's the per- like purpose of it like cuz i think you're you're blending in cultural awareness like all these different training exercises right yeah so you got you have uh the phases of the q course which back when i went through i'm not 100 percent sure what they're doing now we had uh the intro to u-dub um, which is on conventional warfare and that phase had another land nav course which was a bitch at the time that land nav course is actually really hard harder than the q or the the star course in my opinion um and then you went out to sut which is like their small unit tactics it's uh very similar to the things you would learn at ranger school um not as long and then you go into seer and then you have your uh specialty schools your mos's um obviously your bravo charlie delta echo um and then you come back together for robin sage which is like the culminating event where you do a uh mock unconventional warfare campaign in Pineland, which is a fictional um, country, and that's like your pass or go. And then now they graduate after Robin Sage, and then sp- spend six months in language school. Was there any major failures you had in the Q course or recycles? Um, I'd recycled. Um, I was in the Charlie course. Unfortunately, we had an accident where there was an explosion, um, and lost one one of my friends, um, and other people got injured. So I took a compassionate recycle so I could go to his funeral. Um, and then like after that, it was, a an accident at the, the Q course. So I was like, honestly, so, um, like afraid of explosives to an extent. It's like, that's what, you know, killed my friend. Um, so going back into the Q course after that event or going back into the Charlie course, I was like nervous. I'd be shaking anytime I mess with explosives. And that led me, led to me failing the FTX. So, after that point, I recycled, did the entirely entire Charlie course again, um, and then ultimately went to Sage. Okay. And how was uh once you finished everything, how was uh how's graduation for you? It was uh it was a good feeling, man. Um my stepdad was there. We he I mean, it was cool to put the beret on for the first time in front of him. Um, kind of keep that lineage going. So uh it was um a good experience. And then uh it was kind of weird though, because my class was the first class where they changed it to where you graduated immediately after Robin Sage and then went to language school as, you know, like a green beret wearing it. So it, 
And there was a lot of pushback in the community saying like, we're not fully qualified Green Berets. So it was like a, a half graduation. Like I, I put the Green Beret on, put the tab on, but you still feel like there's work to do before you've actually earned it. Um, so for the next six months, we were like sort of Green Berets. <laughs> you know yeah. What I mean? <laughs> so did you did your stepfather put the, his beret on as well? No. Um, he no, just, no. he showed up, he was, he was working for Homeland security at the time. So he just showed up in his suit with his little lapel and everything. But, uh, yeah, I, I've, um, he didn't, he didn't wear his, but that would have been a badass picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah, dude. And, um, going into like Q course tips now, um, you actually, you'd be surprised, you know, cause I, I hear people still quit even after they get selected. Cause whether it's cause family or they're like, man, this pipeline is freaking long. Um, how did you stay level-headed and not get discouraged even when you got recycled or that that occurrence happened where you're scared to touch the explosive and just kept pressing forward? Yeah. Um, I mean, I I felt pretty good up until that point. Uh, I hadn't recycled anything. I'd done well on all my tests. Um, that that point really tested me. Um, oh, I apologize. I, I remember you did a compassionate recycle, but but nonetheless, no, you, still mean, had that, you still struggled with like uh, the mentality part. Yeah, I recycled twice. The one of them was a compassionate, um, and then the next one, like I said, I was just so nervous, like messing with explosives after that event, that I was. Um, it led to me uh, making a mistake at the FTX, and I got actually recycled. So I got um, academically recycled then, and then uh, um, that that time frame was I I think the biggest test throughout my Q course, um, and like really put into perspective why I'm doing this. Um, Obviously, when that, you know, the gravity of that starts to sit in, you start questioning whether this is something you really want to do, all that type of stuff. But ultimately, like I knew I wanted to um, be on a team and and do the job overseas. So that's what led me to just pushing through it. Got you. And uh, any other uh, tidbits of advice you could pass on for people in the uh, for the Q course? Yeah, man, just take it day by day. Um, don't get too wrapped up with how long you're there. Just enjoy the time you have. You have lots of downtime during the Q course between phases and stuff like that. Like use that time to build relationships with the guys at the Q course. Cause you will run into each other later down the road in the regiment. Um, have a good time, like work hard. And, and then, like I said, just don't, don't self-select like you are there, um, because you already were selected and they want to train you. So just, you know, Put your head down, take it day by day, and, and you'll get through it. Okay. And let, let's get into uh your F and G time now. Um, so as a new guy, how was it uh checking in? It it was interesting. I uh so I I PCS'd from um Bragg to Carson and while I was on my my PCS leave, uh I bought a house and everything, and then I got a text from a guy I went to the Q course with saying, Hey, like you're coming to this battalion and uh, you are going to Afghanistan right away. So the ta- the battalion was forward. I'm sorry, the company was forward already. And uh, um, I ended up signing in and then I went through my in-processing like really quick at Carson and then flew over to Afghanistan. So I actually met the dudes for the first time in country. Okay. And what were you doing to t- try to gain these guys' trust and respect? Were you just volunteering a lot? quote unquote, being that, that perfect soldier, what were you doing? Yeah. Working, working, man. Like, um, I kind of have a, had a different experience where I bounced around between different teams, um, essentially trying out and every team I went to, I would just, uh, you know, 
be the the worker bee around the camp like i would do all the stuff that nobody wanted to do or just do anything that i could i i never felt like um i always felt like if i was not doing something then i wasn't you know gonna be considered for that team so uh yeah i just i worked um i tried to get on as many missions as i possibly could um obviously you want that operational aspect to it and then i really clicked with the team i ended up on uh became really close friends with a lot of those guys um in a very short amount of time and then like i said like going out and completing those missions was like um kind of my level of acceptance uh i guess going back to the first question you asked me or one of the first questions you asked me like what was the the moment where i got the most fulfillment it wasn't when i got my green beret it was i went to my team um we it was probably my third or fourth mission i went out with them and after the mission they uh had these team hats made um which is one of the hats i wear a lot a lot in my videos and after the mission they they said hey you know we we want you to join our team when we get back um here's our team hat like all this type of stuff and it was like coming from all the guys and it just brought a lot of uh excitement to me so um well in what group were you assigned to 10th group 10th group and that's in uh for carson right yeah yeah in colorado okay damn man that's awesome man. I, I would, yeah me too i'd wear that hat all the time yeah yeah, the one you're, yeah i was yeah i was about to say it's not the one you're wearing right now right it's uh no it's not the one i'm wearing now um and it's not the one I, I wear in my videos because um, the hat, the original hat is like super dirty, but I, I still have it um, up in my room. Actually, it's it's brown and just like stained every possible way you could because <laughs> I wore it, you know, every day in Afghanistan for the remainder of the trip. Like anytime yeah. I, I wore it for years. So. And in terms of uh, ODA life, you know, how was uh, how was every, how was that for you? They love was it, it everything man. you were looking for? Um on the team level yes absolutely i i had a great team like some of the best friends i'll ever have and um just the environment of like coming to work and spending your your days with like your best friends and doing cool shit you know like riding four wheelers going shoot guns like all this stuff um yeah it was a it was a ride and it was a lot of fun like uh definitely the best job i ever had in that aspect and what's what's a typical day for you like as a like on the teams that's something that is that i really enjoyed about it is there's no typical day you know um there's different training events that come up every week so you walk in uh you might um go to the range you might be doing maneuver training like and you could do so many different things and you're always preparing for it you're always getting the gear ready all this type of stuff but uh i would say on a day in garrison when there wasn't a whole lot going on um, we just show up, we would do any admin work we needed to do. And then we would just like chill in the team room. A lot of times our, I had a team sergeant, one of my, not the first one, but one of the team sergeants I had, he would always yell at us to go home because we, we had this like ping pong table at work and, uh, we would just, we'd be done for the day. It'd be like six or seven o'clock at night. And we'd just be in there drinking a beer and playing ping pong. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, it really varied, but, um, it was a lot of fun. I, it, it was like nonstop jokes and, you know, poking jokes at people and just laughing the whole time. So it was, it was a good time. And how many, how many deployments in total uh, were you a part of? Uh, so two with, um, group and then two with the one sixtieth. And for group, how long are those deployments typically? 
Uh, they're supposed to be six months um, because I I joined the Afghanistan one a little bit later. Mine wasn't quite six. And then uh, I went to Europe on the next one. Um, and that one was around four or five. Okay. And um, and uh, was there any deployment where things like almost almost did or did went like haywire? Uh, what do you mean? Like a mission? Yeah, like things went south. Like you're in a full-blown gunfight. Things are just going crazy. Yeah. Um, one of the, the scariest moments I had was uh, we were on a mission and um, we were doing a, a remain over day, a rod. So we got there that night and we cleared the village stuff and then held, hold, held up in this compound. And when you do that, you uh, kind of put up defensive fighting positions using sandbags. We'd ruck, like ruck in the, um, the empty sandbags. And then when we get there, we start digging. So we dig these holes to fill these sandbags and we're waiting all day for the firefight. Like we can hear the Taliban chatter, all this type of stuff. Well, 20 minutes before the sun went down, it just popped off. Like they, there was these green zones about 150 yards from us on two sides and they just started lighting the compound up. Like they put themselves in position to start shooting through doors. So like rounds are coming into the compound, all this type of stuff. Um, and then, uh, we had a mortar pit in the center of it and we brought a shit ton of mortars. Um, and they were all laying out there, you know, flat. So, uh, I was, um, we, we did like rotating guard duty on the, during the rod. And I was not on guard duty at the time. So I was like in one of the buildings kind of bullshitting. So I run out there. I, I go, I start um, unpackaging these mortars so we can start hanging them into the green zones. And I unpackage, um, you know, enough for them to start hanging them and everything like that. So I'm like, hey, I'm going to go up on the roof. So I start climbing the ladder. As soon as I get to the roof, a, uh, an explosion happened right where I was just standing. Huge. Everyone's like knocked. Um, I look back down on the dudes that were we're down in the, in the mortar pit or you just see smoke. And in the back of my mind, I was like, fuck man, they're dead. Um, and then like the smoke clears and one of them like gets up and he's like, I'm good. And he starts hanging mortars again. And, uh, what happened was right where the mortar pit was, is where we dug for the sandbags. So the mortar, the enemy mortar that got dropped in our compound went into the hole instead of landing on the flat ground next to the mortars. So the hole that we dug for the sandbag, which is probably, you know, 10 inches, 12 inches deep, um, literally saved our lives. And, uh, um, then shortly after that, F-15s came on and started, you know, blowing up the, the, the tree lines, everything like that. And, um, the firefight kind of recited, uh, and we, we took off. So, but yeah, that was, uh, probably my, my closest, um, kind of sketchiest moment in Afghanistan was that, that mortar round that luckily landed in that hole that we dug out instead of six inches over. If that landed six inches over, it would, it would have landed in the mortar pit where we had all ours and it would have been a bad day. How was it like to the plane ride there, like to the objectives? Like, is it like freaking cool for you or like not really? Um, it's a very therapeutic experience. <laughs> you go through a wide range of emotions. Um, it's on one hand, there's so much chaos leading up to the mission. You know, you're trying to get all the, the Afghans, everything of that into the helicopter, um, and get them going. And then you, you finally get on the helicopter and you get to relax, you know, you have a 
45 minute flight to the, the objective and you finally get to just chill and sit on the helicopter. And then they call out 10 minutes, you get a little more nervous. They call out five minutes and get a little more nervous. They call it one minute. This is really when it really sets in. And, um, you feel that, that nervous excitement, like you, it's time to go. Like you accept whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Like I'm going to, if we're about to get lit up on the ground, like we're going to give them hell going out. Um, and, and then, you know, it, it finally lands, you get off the helicopter, it takes off. And, uh, I never had like a hot infill, like where we're getting shot at coming in. Um, so all my experiences were the helicopter lands, it takes off and then it's dead quiet. And then you, you start operating, you find out where you're going. Um, you locate the objectives and you start moving to it. So yeah, that, uh, that ride in is always a range of emotions where, um, you know, it's excitement mixed with a touch of fear mixed with, um, you know, this, this, uh, sense of adrenaline, this it's huge adrenaline rush. Um, and then you get there and you're in it. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed those helicopter rides then. <laughs> and just, uh, kind of cap off the OD lot, ODA live, uh, the green beret life in general, our topic in general, uh, What's your what was your favorite part about being a Green Beret, and then also what was your least favorite part about being a Green Beret? Yeah, you know, I my favorite part about Green being a Green Beret was my teammates, um, doing all that stuff with your your team. Uh, obviously, having those friendships that you develop through shared experiences, difficult experiences, doing fun things, getting to travel the world, um, like that. It, it's an irreplaceable time in my life that I'll be thankful for forever. Um, and then on the flip side of that, above the kind of team level, uh, the bureaucracy is what I really didn't like. Um, you're still in the army. Uh, you're still controlled by the organization. So um, that that is uh, something that I really came to resent. Um, and having that lack of control in my life above my even team level was ultimately what uh, you know led me to getting out. It's like I I talked to you about it offline, but I came from, you know, my parents' roof where I was controlled to a certain extent to join the military where I was controlled to a certain extent. I wanted to, you know, become a Green Beret so I would have more autonomy, which I did. But it, I mean, you, you do and you don't like you're gone a lot. Um, sometimes you don't, you know, resonate with what the hell you're doing. So um, it started to take a toll. And then ultimately, I just wanted to regain control over my life. Um, and it's sad that it came at the expense of, you know, me not being able to do the job that it, I wanted to do, um, and leaving my team and everything. But, uh, ultimately it just came down to me wanting more freedom. Got it. And that's kind of, kind of lead into my next topic, which is leadership. Uh, try to touch on that topic a little bit. Cause you've been exposed to good, but like you said, you've also been exposed to poor. What in your eyes separates a good leader from a bad leader? Taking care of the guys, man. Um, the good leaders are the ones that genuinely care about the guys that they're serving with, uh, the guys on their team and, uh, you know, the guys that they have a responsibility to lead. Um, and part of leadership is, you know, the army definition is to, uh, essentially inspire and motivate the soldiers below you to accomplish a, you know, a shared mission. So, um, the, the ability to shield the the guys from kind of the bullshit that goes with the, you know, the bureaucracy of the military and then uh, going to bat for them when necessary 
and, you know, developing that mutual respect. Um, I think a lot of times the problem that leaders have in the military is career progression. They get so wrapped up with, you know, appeasing the guy that's above them instead of genuinely taking care of the guys that, you know, they should be serving. And it leads to this disconnect between soldier and leader um, to, you know, and leads to guys getting out, leads to, you know, micromanaging all this type of stuff. Um, and I think that's a big deep rooted issue within the military right now. Yeah. Which is, um, which is crucial, you know, cause following you cause I want to follow you versus following the rank are two big things that, you know, you know, we have to fix, you know what I mean? Putting the right leaders in the right positions cause they earned it. And not only when they earn it, but their, their, uh, platoon or, or their squad, or whatever the case may be, they vouch for them as well. They're like, man, this guy's freaking awesome. Like, he should stay in this position uh for sure yeah uh, how do you propose that how uh, do you do is there anything you propose to that the military can do to get better leaders and positions you know to put their soldiers in the best positions and prevent what's happening now which is a uh, recruiting sword, uh shortage etc yeah it's tough because the thing is is like um it's all it doesn't just start with the lowest rank it trickles down from the officer ranks you know um the way officers progress is by getting a good uh, OER, which is op- Officer Evaluation Report. And, the, and who writes those OERs is their leaders. So they need to essentially suck up to their leaders in, in a certain aspect. And that it's it's similar on the enlisted side. So what you end up getting is um, all these guys that are more concerned with taking care of the people above them and less concerned with taking care of the people below them. Whereas I think it should be opposite in the sense of um, whether they're not, they're able to actually lead their platoon, their squad, their company, whatever it is, to genuinely want to accomplish the mission and put forth the effort required. Um, going back to my experiences, like I've I've had you know leaders that were toxic in the workplace. I've had amazing leaders, and um, the difference is like when you have a toxic leader and he comes in, he's like, hey we need to do this. You know, everyone's like, wow, I don't really want to do that. And like starts getting pushed back. Like there's not really motivation to do it. Whereas the leader that has taken care of their guys, they've shielded them. They genuinely care about their well-being. when he comes in and he's like, Hey, you know, I know this sucks, but we got to do it. Everyone's like, no, we got it. Like we're going to freaking knock it out because we know that this is like what you need, you need to get done. I respect this guy so much that, I don't care if I'll be here till midnight. Like we're gonna get it done. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, and then that's exactly how it is. Like leaders, are, the good leaders I come across. I mean, I'll go through thick, uh, through thick and thin for them. Like you said, like if it takes all night, if it takes days, I respect them so much that I want to make them look good. Right. Which is another good characteristic characteristic of being like a quote unquote, uh, Joe. I guess is what they might call him in the military. Um, making your leadership look good, you know, and it just helps out your squad, your platoon, um, just overall. So to um, the decision to uh, get out, once you make that decision and you're kind of itching towards your um, ETS, is it uh, kicking in like, dang, like like fig- like having to figure things out? You know, because the military supplements a lot of things, housing, a paycheck every month, you know, all those different things. Was that on your mind? Not necessarily the housing part of it. Uh, I think I, I knew I would... Um figure that out whether or not like i i started investing in real estate a couple years ago so i had places to go um but 
I think uh, more so I was just concerned with like finding fulfillment, um, you know, coming from that environment. Sorry. You're good. Coming from that environment you where you really enjoy your job. Um, my biggest fear was like getting out of the military and then not enjoying what I do anymore and kind of just going through the motions of life, um, which is a challenge. And, and admittedly it's, it was, a uh, it, it came with some different challenges than I expected. I kind of prepared for that type of thing. Um, I started some, you know, different ventures or going down different paths and decided like, this isn't for me. Like I want to do something I see myself doing long-term, um, and that's kind of how I stumbled on this whole social media thing is like these younger guys, um, you know, 18, 19, 20, 22, whatever, uh, started contacting me, asking me questions. They wanted to go down a similar path and, you know, they needed some guidance. So being able to correspond with them, provide my experience. Um, I never steer anyone in a particular direction, but just giving them some insight of, of what it kind of looks like on the inside and give them, paint them a realistic picture um and watch them you know their their motivation of like when i was 22 years old doing a selection kind of getting to that point like it has really provided me with that fulfillment um so yeah i think getting out of the military it's it's daunting um especially being someone that is so institutionalized essentially like that's i always i never really experienced my adult life on my own um and you you have endless opportunities so you're super excited about you know you can go anywhere in the world and do any job whatever like uh there you know the the sky's the limit but at the same time there's so many opportunities out there that you don't really know which one to invest your time in and uh that starts to become frustrating and take a toll on you because you start investing here and you're like ah i don't like it and you're kind of comparing it to the satisfaction you got in your old job and then you change directions and, and all that type of stuff so i think it's just a matter of trying different things out, finding exactly what, you know, you get fulfillment from what you want your life to look like and, uh, making it happen. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, uh, trial and error, yeah. you know, if it doesn't stick, it doesn't stick. You know what I mean? Just keep trying. Um, and it, it's, it's more fulfilling that, like that anyways, you're trying uh, different things, you know what I mean? Cause we only have a short time on the search. So it's good just to kind of get a mixture of everything. And even yeah. if you are confused, you know, as long as you just keep pushing through, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, um, man, you'll be just fine. You know, things happen. Things happen when they're supposed to happen. It's hard in the moment when you're broken and you feel like you don't know what's going on. But everything, I really do feel like everything happens for a reason, whether something didn't happen because such and such and you were bummed out and you really wanted to go there, but it didn't happen. Whatever the case may be, or you went down a, or let's say military, you wanted to go to this soft route, but it didn't work out. You went to this other soft route, uh, soft route, whatever the case may be, you know, you just kind of fill in the blank. You know, you just have to keep pushing forward and um, you'll figure it out for sure. But um, go, going into what you're doing now with mentoring the next generation of not just soft, but, you know, a special op uh, special operations uh, forces, I guess. Is that how you say it? Special operations forces? Yeah. I mean, I would say just like younger men, you know, not younger even men, like, yeah. yeah, not even necessarily uh, like special operations in particular, we talked about it, but I'm not like the special forces assessment and selection, like a uh, guru, guru because I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I'm just not connected to that, that lifestyle, yeah. that environment as much. So I can't provide, and I don't want to provide as much information as like green beret chronicles and those guys. But, um, I think it's just being a good example, uh, for younger guys and like showing them that you 
um, can do whatever you want with your life. Like going back to kind of what I said in the beginning, like I was that kid that just wanted to um, make everyone around me proud of me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I wanted to make my family proud. I wanted to do all this stuff. And some of the things I did wasn't necessarily because I genuinely wanted to, but because I knew it would make other people proud. And uh, looking back, I mean, I wouldn't change anything because I, I've learned um, from those experiences. But I think someone in that particular situation, if they can hear that and kind of identify early on a different path that they genuinely resonate with, and it's something they could see themselves doing more long term, then that's a win for me. And and that's something that I get a lot of, you know, fulfillment out of is like providing that info, you know, just helping younger guys out um, and, you know, providing that guidance, inspiring them to think for themselves. And you're, you're doing that through your, dis- your YouTube channel, your Discord um, and your, your Patreon just kind of going through each one. Like I know, well, for the most part, like I know your YouTube channel, like you said, it's, it's a lot of guidance. You're just giving like mental um, and physical advice. Um, kind of walk us through what the disc, what the purpose of your discord and your Patreon is and what, what, uh, what it consists of, if that makes sense. Yeah. The Discord's a platform uh, to get more like um, in depth, I guess, one-on-one or uh, not one-on-one, but uh, more in depth conversation. People can go in there and ask questions. You're not limited to, you know, the the amount of text you can put in the comment section. Everyone there is, you know, down a similar path of self-improvement, um, all this type of stuff. It's a very positive community. You can just go in and ask questions. Um, and then the Patreon is uh, kind of a place where I post daily workouts. Um, I do like mindset, more of like mindset tip videos that I don't put up on the YouTube um, and things like that to where it's like, now this is the implementation. So I guess the discord is more of like the idea of um, the guidance of it. And then the Patreon is more of the implementation. Like these are the workouts that I would do in this situation, uh, training up for the military in general or career and special operations. Um, and then some mindset tips to get through it. Yeah. And as someone who is in the discord, I highly recommend it. I, I really like it. Like, I got to check your, uh, your, uh, the Patreon. Um, that you created. I haven't, I haven't been able to check that out yet, but I definitely want to subscribe to that. So yeah, if y'all see this, definitely take advantage of all those three different platforms, his YouTube channel, um, his discord and his, uh, Patreon that I'll try, I'll find the links. I'll try to get the links from John and then I'll put them in the, the, uh, the description or the description box. Um, but that's it. Yeah. That does before we conclude, is there, um, well, what, what's the, I guess going back to kind of my first question, you know, the meaning of life, like, what is it that you're looking to the, what's the big vision now? Like, I know you kind of said what you were saying right now, but what's the big vision to your time on this earth is just gone. As weird as that sounds. <laughs> no, I hear you, man. And we never know when that's coming, but uh, yeah. my big vision is just to keep doing what I'm doing. I know this requires consistency. I want to reach as many people as I can and be a, a positive or a source of positivity for them. Um, provide more info on, you know, training. Uh, I talk about, when I was training as a young soldier to go to selection or do all this crazy stuff, like I was doing these, these crazy workouts. I was just, I was just killing myself in the gym every day. Um, and now I've taken more of a athletic approach. Um, you know, I talk about like we, when you volunteer to be a soldier, you volunteer, especially in combat arms, you're essentially volunteering to be a professional athlete. And I think we need to start taking care of our bodies just as a professional athlete would. So I try to provide workouts that, um, 
you know, it's, it's training smart and not just like killing yourself in the gym. It's training, um, developing building blocks to where over a long period of time, you'll see tremendous progress as opposed to just testing your mind, which I think those are necessary every now and then, but on a consistent basis, it's hard to sustain. Um, but long-term man, I just, I, uh, I see myself continuing that. I see myself reinvesting, um, and making it bigger and bigger, adding more things. I want to add like yoga and some specific recovery sessions that are led by professional instructors. Um, so, uh, on that professional aspect. And then on my personal side, uh, you know, I have a fiance, um, we're going to get married in, in the spring. We want to take a big sabbatical and, uh, go to Europe for a couple months. Um, and then eventually get some property out in the woods somewhere and develop a little kind of homestead type of property and, and, uh, live my life out there providing value for those that can. Got you. And actually I just have one more before I conclude the episode and just kind of close it out for that. For that that guy, whether older, whether younger or older, who's curious, they have that curious mind of wanting to go down some kind of special operations, um, wanted to join some special operation organization, but they're second guessing themselves, they're overthinking it, they don't think they're good enough, they don't know where to start, they don't know how to start, whatever the case may be. What what kind of guidance can you give to them? Yeah, man, just just start identify a path you want to go down and just take a step. You know, the man that loves walking will go a lot further than the the man that loves the destination. So, you know, just, just get started. Don't worry about whether you're going to make it or not. Like we all know that there's a possibility you could get hurt, non-selected, whatever. Um, just focus on getting through the training, like, uh, take a approach. If you're going to selection or you're going to rasp or you're going to EGP, whatever it is, like, just commit to getting through the day and getting through the course and then putting a hundred percent out there and, and letting the rest take care of itself. You know, I've, I'm a, I'm a believer that everything ultimately happens for a reason. So if you know, you weren't selected and you learn something from that experience that you can go apply to another Avenue of life, like you're better for it. So I would say if you want to go down that path, just, uh, just start working towards it. Um, go do it and you might surprise yourself. Yeah. And I, I want to say this too, because I want to give my little bit, I guess, uh, inspiration, I guess you could say, to that person. And I'm probably going to butcher this. I'm not going to get exact. But there's there was this cowboy f- uh, flowing across the Internet. He was giving, like, really good advice, like, just bearded up. Like, this is this uh, cool guy. But on one of the, his videos, he was like, hey, like, one day, just go somewhere quiet. Like, just you, whether that's in your room, hotel, whatever the case may be, right? And take time to write your obituary. And once you write it, ask yourself, am I okay with what is on this obituary? And then you have your answer. And then that would would be even more of a boost to get to where you want to go or stop making excuses. And every time you, you, and even when you do revert back, you're probably going to revert back to I'm not good enough, et cetera. Look back on that and be like, no, like, I have to, man. Like, I have one shot at life. I have to make something of myself. I love that, man. Write your obituary. Backwards plan, you know, backwards plan is a big thing <laughs> in the military. Like you look at your mission, you backwards plan a timeline off of that. So write your obituary, zoom out, and then backwards plan. What you got to do? Yeah, man, you can put that on your YouTube channel if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's, that's good. That's really good. <laughs> but uh, man, guys, that was an awesome episode. Uh, I'm maybe even see if John wants to maybe bring him on for part two, kind of go more in depth. I know there was certain stuff that we weren't able to really kind of elaborate on, but we can't elaborate on if we 
you know, do a part two or something like that. So if John has the time, John is up to it. You know, we'll definitely bring him off for part two, but first green beret. (laughs) Yes, sir. So, um, that's it guys. Please like, uh, share, subscribe, share these stories, man. Like I said, someone somewhere might need to hear this needs to listen to this, whether it's John or whoever, whoever else I've interviewed thus far, just please share their stories. Like I said, stories are meant to be shared. Uh, they're not meant to be kept. Uh, someone could use it, but, uh, with that being said, that's it guys. See y'all next time.